Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 90. Please follow along as I read. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And I also thank you, Lord, that is a comfort to us and a guide to us during times of trouble and struggle. Lord, be with John as he preaches this morning that your word would go forth and be a blessing to many. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be together in this way this morning to give our attention to God's word. Appreciate your patience with us as we continue to try to help the audio and video get into sync better. We hope that it's a little better now than it was just a minute or two ago. You can take your Bibles and open them to the book of Genesis. We'll be there here in just a minute. This morning we finish our series about walking with God with a sermon entitled Walking with God Through Death. Uh, The series that we've been preaching through has included titles such as Walking with God Through Fear and Uncertainty, Through Disease and Sickness, Walking with God Through Difficulty and Deprivation, and walking with God through doubt. If you haven't listened to those sermons, I'd encourage you to find them on our website and give them a listen. It would help you better understand the context for uh, the topic of our sermon this today. A sermon about walking with God through death is applicable for all of us because all of us are dying. And if Jesus uh, delays his return, all of us one way will die. It's just a matter of when. Most of us have been touched by death through the loss of someone we love And because death is a sad reality of our world, it's important that we think about death and equip ourselves as much as we can to have biblical truth and thought patterns in us now. 
I speak from experience. Death became much more real to me last year. Sure, I'd been touched by death before that. My grandparents died, or I even had a friend in high school drown during school camp, and all of that shook me to a degree. But I began puzzling through the horrific realities of death in a much deeper way when my dad died. Last year, 2019, at the end of July, my dad, at the age of 66, received a cancer diagnosis, and he died two months later at the end of September. I don't claim to be an expert on the topic of death or to have the most experience with death. Uh, some of you are watching today have experienced death and the sting of death in similar ways or even, even worse ways. You've buried a spouse or a child. I mention the death of my father as we begin not to gain sympathy, but to assure you that the Bible truth we're going to be looking at this morning has been personally tested and tasted by my own heart. And I felt the fresh breezes of God's grace in my own soul, and it's those fresh breezes of God's grace that I hope you feel the same. The aim of this sermon will be to help equip us to better understand what death is and how to walk with God through it. I want us to be clear that this is not a sermon about grief. Uh, That would be a worthy topic for a sermon, uh, but that is not the topic of this sermon. Uh, Today we're going to look through this topic of walking with God through death in three different sections. Uh, The first section We need to understand what death is. Uh, Once we learn what death is, that it's the perfectly fit punishment for sin, then we can better understand how to walk with God through it. Second, we're going to reflect on the fact that God walked through death with us, for us. And third, we're going to celebrate that for Christians, the best is yet to come. Now, before we get into that outline, I feel a need to give two more clarifications. Uh, This sermon is in no way intended to capitalize on our present circumstances with the pandemic. Uh, We're living in days of uncertainty and fear. All of that comes with this general sense of fear of death. Uh, We've got death statistics that are now part of the regular news cycle. And so if you're thinking, how dare a church, you know, be sensational about death in a time like this, I assure you this is in no way meant to be sensational. Uh, The elders believe that biblical instruction on this topic is needful. And for what it's worth, the sermon series was organized, it was scheduled uh, last year before COVID-19 was even a news headline in the United States. And so we're accepting the arrangement of our present circumstances intersecting with these topics under God's providential handiwork. I also want to mention a couple of resources that I found enormously helpful in my uh, contemplations about this topic scripturally about death and my own, scripture, my own Christian growth in the scriptures about this. I mention them for your own um, usefulness as well. The first is a book entitled Remember Death by Matthew McCullough. And the other two resources are books by Tim Keller, uh, one you're familiar with uh, from our equipping elective, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and the other one, a much shorter book by Keller called On Death. I owe a debt to these. There's other resources as well. Uh, so whatever good God may be pleased to do through this sermon, I don't want you to be thinking well of me. Uh, I really hope that it will help you think well of God who gives us these life-giving truths. So let's begin. I remember the horrible sensation creep over me when I heard my dad's terminal diagnosis. Um, Originally, it was thought to be something else, much less serious, and I remember the wave of relief in that moment. And then, encountering that, I remember when I did hear uh, the terminal diagnosis, that wave of just... Um, the horror. The discussions were not about a cure. The discussions were no longer about uh, a way to recover. Death was inevitable. Now the discussions were about if and how and should 
um, something be done to try to delay death. What is death? And why does it affect us so deeply? Our naturalistic, scientific world would have us believe that death is just part of the circle of life. But if that is so, then why as a human race do we hate death so much and why do we do everything that we can to avoid and forget and otherwise try to defy death, to push it to the fringes of our consciousness? Well, as we read through the scriptures, we learn that death was not part of God's original intent for humankind. To help us understand how to walk with God through death, we need to understand what death is and we find first that death is the perfectly fitted punishment for sin. It's the perfectly fit punishment for sin. Death appears quickly in the biblical narrative. I want us to give a quick survey of the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And Genesis 1, we read about God, magnificent creation. I mean, he speaks and creation comes into existence over and over again. We're told that everything God creates is good. It is good. It is good. God separates light from darkness. He filled the heavens uh, with sun, moon, and stars. He fills, uh, the, he makes lands and oceans. He fills the lands and oceans and skies with uh, creatures. And truly, creation is singing an anthem of praise every morning and every night. And we join in with that praise when we pause and look at a sunset or a sunrise. But as we keep reading in Genesis, we learn that the pinnacle of God's creation are his image bearers, humankind. Humankind reflects God's unique excellencies and glories because he gives us the breath of life. We are made in God's image. Humans are set apart from the rest of living organisms because of this unique dignity bestowed on us by our creator. Humankind possesses a gifted dignity. It's been said like this, that the dignity of human life is like that of the moon catching the light of the sun. We don't shine with a dignity of our own making, but of God's giving. The creation account in Genesis teaches us that the only reason the universe and our world exists is because of the creative acts of a generous and good God. That God made the world. He is the one who called it very good. And we've been allowed to enjoy and care for his creation. And you might be thinking, so far, so good. Uh, Many of us know the story of Genesis continues. This creative, all-powerful, and unimaginably generous God gave his image-bearing creations one prohibition. In Genesis 2, beginning in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in other words, if you disobey If you try to define your life according to your own way, and if you live as if you are God, you will die. God established death as the perfectly fitted punishment for sin. That's what death is. Death is not just the natural cycle of life, so to speak. It is the perfectly fitted punishment for sin. The death that God warned about in Genesis 2 enters the human story in Genesis 3. The devil, in the form of a serpent, directly contradicts God's warning about death. He tells Eve that she will not die if she disobeys God. And Adam and Eve doubt God's goodness and authority. They confuse their own role as created image bearers and they act apart from God as if they are God. And they trade their identity that God gave them as image bearers for an alternative identity of their own design as if they are now mini-gods. And what God warned them about, death, 
immediately descended on the totality of their persons, on the totality of their existence, and on the human race. And so the relationship with God died. Peace with God is replaced by shame and guilt and fear. And now they're hiding themselves from God and from the very one who gave them life and gave them dignity and purpose. And the death of their bodies began. And God explained the curse that had fallen, this death that falls on them. In Genesis chapter 3, he says it this way, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's description of death. Death is appalling to us. It, we hate it, and, we, and rightly so. We know that we weren't made for death. Death interrupts the human story. It's not simply the natural circle of human life. We know this deep within our souls. Humans were made to live forever and always bear God's image and enjoy Him forever. And that's why when a person dies, we're confounded that a person, an irreplaceable, unrepeatable, unique person is simply gone, erased. How can that be? Well, what we can learn from all of this What death teaches us is that in order to walk with God through death, we must understand and admit that death teaches us something about ourselves. Death teaches us that we are not the center of the universe. Death proves that we are not indispensable. We will die and the world will go on without us. Not to be too crude, but one day you will die and the next morning your family will wake up and get up and eat breakfast. Yet so often we push this reality of death out of our consciousness and live as if we're indispensable. But death reminds us that God is at the center of the universe, not us. God doesn't have a role to play in our story. He isn't secondary character in our story that we're starring in. We fit into God's story. For example, we like to think about God's salvation and love for us. We Why wouldn't God love us? I mean, why wouldn't God save us? That's what God does. That's kind of the God business, right? We casually appreciate that God is in our story to save us and provide for us and rescue us and do good for us. But when we think like that, we have it all backwards. And death reveals how much backwards we have this. Death requires us to admit that we are dispensable. We are the usurpers who deserve to be put back in our place. We are made of dust and to dust we will return. This death-defying attitude that we kind of carry with us by nature is essentially a form of inner narcissism, right? When we push the reality of death to the fringes of our conscious awareness, we're living in this fairy tale land where we think we're the center of the universe. But death shows us how silly it is to live a life that has anything other than God as the center. I mean, how foolish is it to make the center of our existence something, anything, that will one day be lost and forgotten? Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? On what is your life centered? We walk with God through death by first admitting that we are sinners We are the usurpers deserving of death. God is the eternal, irreplaceable one. We are the creatures made of dust who defy God's rule, and to dust we will return. And our modern world responds to death by either trying to deny it or to live in despair of it. But that's not so for Christians. Christians are liberated from both despair and denial because Christians walk with God through death 
Because God walked through death for us. That's number two, our second section here as we look at death. God walked through death for us. It's been said like this. If death says you are less important than you've ever allowed yourself to believe, the gospel says you are far more loved than you ever imagined. If death tells us that we're less important than we've ever wanted to believe, the gospel tells us that we are far more loved than we've ever imagined. This really brings us to the central story of the Bible, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ giving himself as payment for our sin. On our own, we are all sinners, guilty and alienated from God. We just looked at that from Genesis, how we inherit this this depravity of sin and the totality of our beings. We are accountable to a holy God and we are all entirely unable to save ourselves. Physical death, the separation of body and soul, is a shadow of something much worse, the final, ultimate separation of God and man. We heard the echoes of that horror from Jesus on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he experienced the punishment for sin in our place. This all-glorious God, the life and light of God, came into the world through Jesus. He sacrificed himself, paying the penalty for our sin. And he is our only hope of being forgiven, of being brought back into relationship with God. As you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus, as you read about his life, Jesus was familiar with death. In John chapter 11, we read a story about how Jesus was grieved deeply at the death of one of his friends, of Lazarus. And in that story, yes, he calls Lazarus out of the grave, but in the middle of that, as Jesus walks through death, we see somebody touched by death, grieving the loss that death requires of us. And Jesus came as a champion to overcome death. Paul writes it this way in Romans 5. He says, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. So true life, what was meant to be eternal life, it's more than brain waves and a beating heart. The, the Apostle John records it this way in John 17 when Jesus says, he describes eternal life like this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ from who Uh, whom you have sent. Christians walk with God through death because Jesus walked through death for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The sacrificial death of Jesus gives deeper meaning to Psalm 23, the psalm that Jared read for us when we opened this morning. When it says in verse 4 of Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Christians walk with God through death because Jesus walked through death for us. It's not that God knows about death in a theory, in his sense of all-knowingness. Like, he just has such vast amounts of knowledge that, yes, death is one of those pieces of knowledge that he knows about. But God entered that idea in a different way because Jesus entered into our story of pain and loss and death. When we walk with God through death, we walk with somebody who knows it by experience. Jesus is our trailblazer. He walked through death and he leads us through it into eternal life. Jesus rose up from the grave. He he gives eternal life to everyone who embraces him in faith. Romans 6, verse 5 says, we, If we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
So I realize that for most of us, the good news, what I've just gone through, the, the gospel, the Christian gospel, it's not a new story. And you might be wondering, you know, if, if we would, you know, let the reality of death, maybe I should say it this way. I, I wonder if we would let the reality of death, that we will one day return to dust and be buried in the ground. Everything we love will be taken from us in some way. If we would let the reality of death heighten our appreciation and affection for God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when the reality of death is far from our minds, the promises of Jesus seem rather detached and they seem rather abstract. It's like the promises of Jesus and the gospel are are good news for some other world, some imaginary world than the one we're living in that's touched with pain and suffering and loss. It might seem like the problem that, that the truth of the gospel is disconnected from our problems, from our field of view. But that's only when we aren't thinking about death correctly. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I hear you about the gospel, but I, you need help now. Maybe it's, you think your greatest need is financial. You need a job now, or it's relational. You need a spouse or a child or a friend now. Or maybe it's psychological. You, you need acceptance or success or recognition or accomplishment. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one now. And so when you hear the story of the gospel, it may seem like, how does that have any bearing upon your story of grief and sorrow and loss? But when we realize we all die, when we realize everything we love in this world will be taken from us, we realize the reality then of Jesus walking through death for us, it no longer is unexciting or irrelevant. It becomes very relevant. Because all the biggest problems of our world, really, death is the biggest one. I mean, you can try to solve a financial problem. You can try to solve an, an issue with job, with more education, or, or relational issues by just trying other people for relationships. But how are you going to overcome death? If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, I'm quoting from an author named Walter Wanger in here. It's, that, it's, not, it's not the gospel's fault, it's our fault. If death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Worship and proclamation and even faith itself take on a dream-like unreal air and Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy filed and forgotten, whereas he can be our necessary ally and immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. You see, you won't long for a life that is eternal and imperishable if you don't admit that you live in a reality where you are perishing and where everything and everyone you love will one day be taken from you. The gospel tells us that we are important because we are loved. Not loved because we're important. As Christians, we can walk through death knowing that we have been loved by God who walked through death for us bringing us back into relationship with himself so that we might enjoy him forever. And as Christians, we walk with God through death, yes, because he walked through death for us. And finally, our our last section of of looking at this topic this morning, we walk with God through death. As Christians, I just need to put that qualifier there, as Christians, we walk with God through death knowing the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Have you ever made plans for a vacation and the anticipation of the event builds as it draws nearer and nearer? And I know even mentioning vacation right now might cause uh, some of you to get all wound up in, in, a, in, in a wad because all your vacation plans are kind of unknown right now with all the pandemic uncertainty. But just imagine the days of when you were planning a vacation 
and you're building the anticipation, and the day finally arrives, right? You, you arrive at your destination, a cabin, a cruise, a condo or something, and you're looking forward to a time of rest and refreshment and family memories. Have you ever noticed that as you check in, others are checking out? Right? You're taking luggage out of your vehicle, and others are walking out of the destination. They're putting their luggage in their vehicle, and they're driving home. They're leaving. And in a few days' time, that's going to be you. Your vacation will soon be over. Have you ever had the joy of something poisoned at the very beginning because you're thinking about the reality of it eventually ending? This is a snapshot of our life under the sun. One of the devastating effects of death in our present life is that all of the good things in life are under the shadow of death. Death spreads its poison through everything we enjoy because nothing we enjoy is ours to keep forever in life under the sun. Eventually, in this life, everyone loses everything they love. We live in a world, right, that wants more and more and more, while at the same time, the fact is that the more you have, the more you have to lose. But Christians have been set free from the bondage of death. We walk through life and into death knowing that the best is yet to come. And so what's so great about this Christian promise is that the phrase eternal life describes quality of life, not just a quantity. The scriptures describe the quality of eternal life as that which is beyond our imagination. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse, beginning in verse 14 and then down through verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. I mean, it's a glorious promise as, as believers. And then he goes down in verse 16 and he says, so we do not lose heart. Because Paul knows, and he's telling his Christian readers, that the best is yet to come. The result is, he does not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. Christians can live full, meaningful lives in this sin-cursed world, even though there is death, because God gives us something otherworldly in Christ. Jesus doesn't promise to give us more of this life that will be stolen from us in death. In Jesus, God gives us something death can't touch. 1 Peter chapter 1 the Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exclamation mark. I mean, this is just a, an, ex, an explosion of praise from, from Peter's pen. And he says, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? Jesus walked through death for us, rose again, now will bring us to God through him. He, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and hear these words, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Those words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, are the antonyms of death. They're the opposites of death. Everything that death is, what death does to the joys and the loves of this life, the promise of the best of yet to come, is, is all, the op- it's all that turned upside down. Or, or maybe I should say this, it's everything turned right, right side up. 
Christians walk through life and into death knowing the best is yet to come. I saw the powerful effect of this truth firsthand with my dad. During one of my visits with dad, we were in a conversation with some friends that had stopped by. And in that conversation, uh, at a, at a, there was a moment where my dad's words just kind of wandered off. Uh, he seemed confused, disoriented, wasn't able to, to finish the thoughts, that the, the phrases that were started. So these friends left. You know, We thought, well, maybe dad had kind of overdone it. Um, he maybe he just needed some rest and even saying that it just sounds silly right i mean as if a nap is going to help somebody with terminal cancer but this is this was our attempt right so as the day progressed it became apparent that something else had happened uh it seemed that he had had a mini stroke this had happened earlier um after he was diagnosed originally and he was going to be getting a consult for potentially doing some chemotherapy and he was sitting there waiting for the doctor and he had a mini stroke and they sent him to the hospital, and he had similar um, uh, behaviors from that, and this is what was happening here in the house. As time went on through the, through the day, uh, he eventually lost all ability to speak. He could only mumble incoherently. He was devastated. We were devastated. We were frustrated. He was frustrated. We were all sad and scared all at the same time. We, we were trying different things. We were giving him pen and paper. Could he write something down? But the fine motor skills required for speech, he had lost the fine motor skills uh, in his hands to, to write. He couldn't get words or letters put in the correct place. It was, if he did write something down, it was incoherent and illegible. Later that night, I was helping him get comfortable in the hospice bed that was set up there in the family room. He was trying to tell me something, and he couldn't. And he was crying with frustration. He finally blurted out, I'm an imbecile. And at that moment, the horrors of death became very real. What do you tell somebody in that circumstance? How do you comfort or guide them? And so the only thing that came to mind was this phrase, the best is yet to come. And I remember holding my dad's hand and telling him over and over, Dad, it's okay. The best is yet to come. Just one minute. The more that truth sank into his heart, I could see a wave of peace wash over my dad. Um, I, re- I remember just being amazed at the effect that truth by God's Spirit, how it comforted my dad and myself in that moment. Everything was wrong with what was happening. And yet, in that moment, that phrase alone is the only thing that had the power to bring comfort to a dying man. Christians walk through death knowing the best is yet to come. It's not a theory. It's not an abstract truth for out there. It's very real. And one day, this truth will be very real for us. What does this best to come look like? 
Isaiah wrote about this in a prophecy. I'm going to just read it here briefly because it has this, the beauty of a prophetic kind of poetic language. In Isaiah 25, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That's how Isaiah wrote about the best is yet to come as this rich, delicious feast and this removal of this veil that's covered all of us, death. The Apostle John wrote about it this way in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, I'm glad this was said with a loud voice, by the way. This is not whispered. This is not a quiet, a quiet suggestion. This is God Almighty with a loud voice saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy, and true. God is making all things new. The best is yet to come. You might say, so what? You know, how does the good life coming help us live a life now marked by the horrors and losses of death? Well, Christians are helped to endure the hardships and losses of death in this life because we know the best is yet to come. Christians can enjoy even the temporary, even fleeting joys of this life because we know the best is yet to come. And yes, in a way, through death, we will lose everything we love. But at the same time, God's people are assured we will experience greater joys in the life to come. So all the joys and delights and the pleasures and the loves of this life are, are precious gifts from God. So the, as I, the illustration I used previously about the vacation, and have you ever had something poisoned in the beginning because you knew it was going to end? We understand that all the good things that God has given us that will be touched by death, yes, those are just appetizers of eternal glory to come. And that illustration of life of this life and the good things that God gives us in this life as appetizers was so helpful for me. Right? An appetizer is a, a tasty pre-meal treat that helps you anticipate and enjoy the main meal even more. An appetizer is meant to get you ready for something even better. And that's what it is for Christians. The gospel makes all the good things of this life just an appetizer for the life to come. Christians enjoy the good things of this life by never putting our ultimate satisfaction in them because we long for the endless feast, right, that Isaiah wrote about. We long for that endless feast of eternal life with God to come. It doesn't mean that Christians are untouched by grief or that we're unaffected by loss and tragedy. It does mean that Christians have a different kind of sorrow because we have a different perspective on life and death. Christians grieve deeply knowing we are held by God who walks with us in our grief and who assures us the best is yet to come. So in other words, Christians enjoy what we have now, even though we know we will lose it all through death because we look forward to what we will have then. 
The good things in life won't last, but they don't have to. They don't have to. I don't think, I mean, the illustration of an appetizer, none of us are, are, are upset, I don't think, when they take away the appetizer to give us the main meal. The sorrows of this life won't last forever either. The good things of this life are only meant to get us hungry for the feast to come. In Romans 8, in verse 16, we're told that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. That's what, that's what gives us the promise of the best is yet to come. It tells us then that, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, there are times in this life where the suffering we experience and the sorrows we experience might make us doubt that promise. But Christian friends, I want to encourage you to keep taking God at his word. Jesus' death and resurrection have purchased freedom for us to enjoy what we have, what we have even though we know we're going to lose it. So it means we can enjoy our vacation, even though it's going to be over in a flash. We can enjoy parenting our preschoolers, even though we know they're going to be grown up in the blink of an eye. We can enjoy our friendships, even though we know they might change through, through moves. We can enjoy our marriage. We can enjoy productivity at work. Whatever measure of health might, God might give us that's left in our bodies, we can enjoy all of those things, even though they won't last. Yes, it's going to hurt when death separates us from what we love, but the good things of this life don't have to last to be wonderful because God promises that the best is yet to come. These gifts that God gives us, even the joys of relationships, that is the down payment of the sorrow that we feel when those relationships are lost through death, those are the delicious, God-given, God-glorifying appetizers for the healthy and hearty, satisfying meal that he has promised to give us in eternal life. Jesus saves the best wine for last. God has saved for us the best life for last. So yes, Christians, the best is yet to come. We can walk through death knowing that it was the perfect punishment for sin, but Jesus walked through death for us, delivering us from that punishment. And because of Christ, we have the promise that the best is yet to come. I'm going to ask the music team to come. And while they come, we'll have a minute of silent reflection. How would God have you respond? In what ways do you need to think differently about death? Or about the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can your life this week be different because you know Jesus walked through death for you and you know that the best is yet to come? Perhaps there is something in this life that you have made ultimate and you fear death because of what you will lose in it. And you've diminished the glories of the promise that the best is yet to come. 